there are many fields where Israel is a leader and can provide a lot of assistance uh, to China to feed more people, to treat medically more people. There are some other technologies or some other cooperation, which is more on a governmental level, on telecommunication, uh, on special equipment, on security issues. And that's, we have to be quite careful and selective how we cooperate with China, because it's a short term where you try to maximize the profit, but it's a long term, different concerns that you have to take into consideration for the long term. Welcome to this Frank Talk webinar. My guest is Professor Dan Galai. And whereabout are we finding you, Professor? Where are you right now? I'm now in Jerusalem, in my apartment. Um, thank you for accepting to do this webinar. Uh, may I ask you to introduce yourself? So I'm Professor Emeritus at the Hebrew University School of Business Administration. I'm also an entrepreneur, an angel investor involved in many startups, high-tech companies, and also engaged in portfolio management. I have an investment boutique by the name of Sigma Investment House, which I established 28 years ago, uh, operating in Israel, on the Israeli securities mainly. So I try to combine academic and practical uh, experiences uh, and one more thing that my field, the academic field, was uh, in derivatives and risk management. And along the way, I internationally, I was teaching at the University of Melbourne for the last seven years during our summers, your winters, um, and started also a biodesign program at the University of Melbourne, like we did at the Hebrew University. Very interesting teaches students how to innovate in a specific field of medical instrumentation. Extremely successful. We have already quite a few products in Israel as well as in Melbourne, um, which is a fascinating program actually that can show how you can teach people to be entrepreneurs. There's a lot of uncertainty, technological, commercial uncertainty, how to resolve it or how to understand it in a better way and increase the probability of success. So you have, um, as I said earlier, wide areas of interest, and one of them is China. So what does it consist of? Uh, uh, when did you start your involvement with China? What region? And uh, uh, what really is the objective? It was a combination of academia and practice. I start by coming several times to China to teach at Tsinghua University in a very prominent program that they have a, an executive MBA in cooperation with the University of Geneva in Switzerland. And uh, it's actually a PhD program, a doctorate in business administration, DBA. Um, so I was lecturing several times at the university. 
but also I met many business people and I gave lectures also on entrepreneurship. While the course was on risk management, I gave a few lectures also in Shanghai about entrepreneurship, which is my second hat. Um, and it also brought me all the way to Nanning in uh, Guangxi province, also for a seminar and conference on cooperation between Israel and China, Israeli technologies into China. So how do you see the cooperation between um, China and Israel? Um, do you see this cooperation in contradiction uh, with uh, the other Israeli interests, in particularly with the United States? Um, how do you see this? Again, there's a, you know, on an individual basis, I really think that it's very important cooperation in certain fields, especially, you know, in agri-tech, uh, in medical instrumentation, medical services in general. There are many fields where Israel is a leader and can provide a lot of assistance uh, to China to feed more people, to treat medically more people, life-saving technologies, telemedicine, etc. So there are all the fields where cooperation is, can be fantastic life-saving, life-extending, uh, uh, and increasing quality of life. There are some other technologies or some other cooperation, which is more on a governmental level, on telecommunication, uh, on special equipment, on security issues. And that's, we have to be quite careful and selective how we cooperate with China, because there's a short term where you try to maximize the profit, but there's a long term, different concerns that you have to take into consideration for the long term. So all kinds of infrastructure projects carried out by Chinese companies in Israel. Again, you have to be very selective where you accept the cheapest bidder, which is usually the Chinese, over other bidders that are not necessarily subsidized directly or indirectly by the government. So it's not only an issue of money, but the consideration should be much more, much deeper and take many issues into consideration for the long run. So as I see, there is the two ways. I mean, on the export side, which you can... The way that I see it is on the export side, which is the, uh, the, what you covered in the beginning of your answer, uh, I totally get that. So you can be selective as to what you export with China, where the cooperation is and so on. I can hardly hear you now. Can you hardly hear me? Okay, so yeah. uh, I'm not sure whether... Is this any better? Is this any better? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yes, I've, I'm, I'm in the country area. You know that in Australia, we are in confinement. So to escape the confinement, I mean, in Victoria, I should say, to escape yes. the long I, I, I escaped to my farm. At least here, I don't have to uh, give any account to anybody. 
Um, but uh, the, the, the downside of it is my internet is not terrific. Um, but it gets, I get by with it. So then what I was saying, your, your, the first part of your answer, you talked about what Israel can do for, to chi uh, for China uh, in the medical side of things and, and so on. There is a, a great deal of cooperation that you, that you can have with China. On the other side of the coin is what the Israelis are asking the Chinese. And you mentioned about the projects on infrastructure, infrastructure and so on. But the Israelis have also asked the Chinese to come and manage some of the ports, like Haifa, like Eilat, and uh, I believe another one. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's Ashdod. You can confirm whether that's in Ashdod. One. Yeah, they didn't get a uh, bidding. Yeah, they were excluded. They were excluded in Ashdod. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so that of course um, has some ramifications because, as you know, the uh, there are U.S. fleets in the Mediterranean. Uh, there are other areas such as tunnels uh, that the Chinese are uh, constructing in Israel. And I believe that uh, the way the Chinese are able to win some contracts is because their labor is much cheaper. And I recall that during our last uh, dialogue in December, um, I believe that uh, it was you that told us uh, that... Uh, Uh, the Chinese actually were using prisoners' labor in Israel. Is, has this been confirmed? Yeah. No, so that's what I said, that we have to be very selective and careful in the bidding process, because if the only criteria is price, then probably Chinese will win most of the bidding, because they can uh, provide cheaper labor and subsidies behind the scenes by the government. So I think that deeper consideration and more consideration should be taken into consideration when uh, having the bidding on strategic projects. But that's, again, on the governmental uh, front and not sort of a private uh, corporation. But absolutely, I think that the government should be very careful in how they structure the bidding process and allowing international competition on a playing level. I mean, similar conditions and looking at the long run, not only the short run benefits, because we may pay for it in the long run. So very, very often, especially in governments dealing, they are more concerned about the short term than the long term. Because the long term, the government will be replaced or be somebody else that will have to deal with the uh, uh, consequences. But uh, yes, I think it should be balanced between long term and short term consideration. No, it shouldn't be only the maximization of the profit as the only consideration for in the bidding process, especially for strategic. Um, Uh, projects, because the strategic projects usually they have long-term consequences, and we should take them into consideration. We should uh, consider what will happen with the next generation, not only the current generation. And it's true for many decisions made by the government. In Israel, those considerations are there in the forefront of the public. Is there a debate in Israel about this? 
or is this something that's uh, away from the public, away from the media? Uh, again, the, initially, those were not the considerations long-term, the strategic issues. But once it was uh, brought up by the Americans especially, but, and also uh, experts from within Israel on security, uh, some of those considerations were brought up. And I think that was one of the reasons for not giving them the contract in Ashdod. Uh, now they have a special committee actually to deal like Australia to deal with the international cooperation on strategic projects. So those issues should be brought up in such a committee. You know, it, it's not uh, for the public debate usually, but yes, it should be absolutely taken into consideration. I remember when we did our last dialogue, there was a group um, of Israeli, an institute, and I forgot which one it was, that was present and they were really not happy with uh, what was happening with China uh, virtually in secrecy in Israel. And I, I have not followed up with all of the problems that, uh, you know, we have uh, in Australia and similar problems in Israel with COVID and so on that, that uh, fell off my radar. But do you, do you know if there are academics, if there are groups uh, that uh, are trying to be vocal I know, for instance, that news that uh, I believe was incredible when you dropped that bomb, uh, that bombshell in uh, during the dialogue when you said that China is using um, uh, prisoners' label labor for uh, the works that they're doing in the infrastructure project in Israel. There were many journalists in the room. Uh, this has not been reported. Yeah. All they try to do is to uh, find out what was your source, and uh, you were protecting your source, and therefore uh, yes, they still, did still not. protecting my sources. Yeah, and therefore they they did not uh, um, report this at all. Uh, I mean, you are a very serious uh, economic professor. You've got an international reputation. Um, sometimes who says what is happening should suffice. Yes, you can question, of course, but you would not say that, Dan. I know you would not if you did not know in your heart of heart that it's true and that you have not verified the facts for yourself. Uh, I guess it's true. I can't uh, reveal the source, of course. Uh, but you know, we don't have any control over who is coming to work uh, in Israel when it, they come under you know a roof of a company, legitimate company that is uh, doing some work in Israel. You know, they engage in many projects like uh, building the uh, metro, the train, light train in Tel Aviv. You see uh, many hands of Chinese workers. I don't think that anybody has control of labor because uh, and that's how they compete on many contracts. And they're on time. Actually, you know, we had the Turkish companies trying to build the tunnels in Haifa and they were delayed by years until those Chinese came and uh, 
cut the, the timetable by half a year to get the bonuses. But many, probably, you know, from a special camps, laborers, and uh, they were actually very much on time, before time. So yeah. there's, there's a, it's very tempting sometimes. But as I said, you know, it's, we have to be careful. You know, it's, uh, I'll give you another example, and I'm not opposing it, but Tnuva is a major food producer in Israel. Most of the dairy food comes from Tnuva. They were like, a, for many years, like a monopoly. And it was privatized. It belonged to Kibbutzim and Moshavim. And it was privatized. And at the end of the day, after it went to a private uh, investment company, it went to Chinese hands. Okay, so actually all the dairy food in Israel, most of it, is controlled by a Chinese company. Now think about the leverage they may have in the future. Let's say that they have a dispute with the workforce in Nova and they call for a strike, they close the factories. They can do it. They own the company. What will happen next? Mm. I don't want to think about the consequences. Well, I'm not you... saying that they do it. For sure, they are not going to do it in the near future, but they have a leverage. They have used exactly the same strategy here in Australia because they yes. also own a big part of the dairy industry. They own the totality of the dairy industry in Tasmania, which is really supplying the rest of Australia. And uh, uh, it was uh, some naive people in our government that uh, were able to sell that because they simply had assurances by the Chinese that none of what you described would ever happen. What I'm saying is that the consideration should be broadened and it's not the immediate price or profit motives that should be taken into consideration. But again, on the other hand, I'm very much for cooperation, as I said, on technologies that are life extending, improving the quality of life in agri-tech, med-tech, many fields that, you know, educational issues, um, but we should uh, take more issues into consideration. Yes, it, the, the relationship with China needs to be balanced. I mean, there is no problem about doing business with China as long as we also take care uh, of our strategic interests, as they do. They look after their strategic interests and we seem to be able Absolutely. to be putting a price on everything and therefore everything becomes transactional. Uh, we totally disregard our values, we totally disregard what's down the track, what can happen. Uh, I mean, if you, you are a specialist of, of risk management and uh, from that point of view, there is no risk management here. As we say, at the University of Chicago, there's no free lunch. If they provide something very cheaply compared to competition, you have to find out why, how they can afford it, what, are, what they have in the mind. And again, not in the short term, but in the long term. 
And they have a plan. They have a very concrete plan in China about what they want to achieve by 2025, what they want to achieve by 2030, and 2050. They have long-term strategic consideration within China, and they follow them pretty carefully. So then it's not a matter of being too harsh in chi with China, because, you know, once you sold the farm, well, it's too late to, to cry after that, uh, because, you know, it's all very good to be tough with China once you've given them everything and they've taken it all away. Uh, then what do you do? I mean, it's as you negotiate and as you progress that you've got to make those tough decisions and understand transaction by transaction what the objectives are, what the long-term strategy is, what are the risks and so on. We've been too complacent in the past, so now we compensate by being harsh. So, and that's a response that's totally designed uh, for the public, when in reality it's a succession of bad decisions uh, over decades that got us to this point. So we've got We've got a partner, China was a partner, that was playing the long game when everybody else, as you said earlier, was looking after the very short interest. I'm afraid that in Israel, I thought that Israel was immune to that, but uh, unfortunately I'm observing that we've got exactly the same issues in Israel, and in some respects it's even worse because uh, Israel, because of the security aspect of the country, uh, tends not to put everything uh, that has a security uh, tag attached to it uh, in the forefront of the public. So they will tend to be more secretive and therefore the public doesn't have uh, that much education on it. I mean, we've seen the last three elections which happened last year. There hasn't been any debate on this at all. Yeah, but <clears throat> let me give you another example from a, the pandemic actually about short-term and long-term considerations, so not taking full-fledged, you know, the whole spectrum of uh, <clears throat> considerations. Uh, it was a, an issue of a shortage of masks during the pandemic now. Everybody in Israel is now required to, to wear a mask going outside. It's, a, you know, I know that in Australia it's not a requirement in some of the states, but in Israel it's a requirement. It is a total it requirement a at the moment. I can assure you that we can't uh, go out without a mask anymore. But there was a, a shortage initially. Nobody expected uh, the pandemic. And an Israeli company started to produce, got people out of leave, because many people were laid off or were put on leave. So they hired people, started a new line of production to produce a mask, according to all the regulation and, uh, you know, the, to be fully compliant with the needs of uh, the mask, to protect uh, whoever is putting the mask on. But the government agencies that needed masks, they had a, they need to go through a bidding process. And of course, the Chinese company was cheaper than the Israeli one. But here you have the issue of short-term, long-term of consideration. Is it only money? But you know, here the Israeli company was employing people that otherwise will be on leave, will be fired. 
will be on unemployment program. So the government has to support them from the other pocket. So is it better to pay 5% more on the mass and getting the people employed and being paid by the factory? Or is it better to get 5% cheaper mass from China and put more people on leave and have the government to pay them from the other pocket, the unemployment benefits? So that's exactly the issue of how you take, balance the different considerations. Yes. And unfortunately, in many cases, it's a short-term profit that is uh, sort of ruling the decision. Yes. So there is, a, there is a, obviously a lot of uncertainty surrounding all of this. But un until and unless those policies of Israel are clearly put on the table, um, we are going to continue to ask those questions. I think that in Australia now, uh, there is a, a, a policy towards China that's a little bit more defined, especially since China has now cut some of its imports from Australia. So we understand that the threat uh, is real. Um, but uh, when it comes to the Israelis, there, there are still lots of questions uh, to be asked. Um, so then let's go to the other areas of your work. So you, you mentioned about the VIX index and the VIX index, of course, uh, is um, the um, measurement of the volatility of the in the CBOE for the S&P 500 options, if I'm correct. Um, the algorithm, the current algorithm of the VIX, has that changed since your works uh, back in the 70s, or uh, has it remained the same? Uh, you know, the volatility index, the VIX, is a, actually a technical index that is derived from option prices. So you take whatever people are paying for. The price of options is really the prices of insurance. Think about it as a premium, especially put option, is like an insurance premium. So when the risk, the uncertainty is higher, the premium is going up, like in any insurance. Only here it's determined, the price is determined by the marketplace among buyers and sellers, and the market is extremely active in options on indices. So you get an indication that is very accurate at each point of time, because you have more or less continuous trading and high volume, a lot of liquidity. It's not trying to predict, but it shows what is the price now of uncertainty. And what we saw with the pandemic in Actually, we saw from the end of February in the United States, over in Israel, in Australia, I think as well, is a huge surge in the uncertainty. About 10, 15 points, it jumped to 40, 50, 60, to very high levels. And unlike any crisis in the past, including the GFC of 2007, 2009, 
it stayed very high for a very long time, for more than four or five months. The VIX is at a very high level, and even today, is much higher than normal. And normal is about 15 points. And it is in the United States and Israel, in many uh, countries, it's still very high. It shows the uncertainty, it really reflects the uncertainty due to the pandemic. So it went a little bit down over the last two months due to the government help in uh, pouring money on the economies, $3 trillion in the United States, uh, about 100 billion shekels in Israel. So we see the effect of providing liquidity to the market. But in my view, it's really um, very artificial because we'll have to pay for it. And it's not solving the loss caused by the pandemic. So we see still the uncertainty, and I believe that it will surge again once all the government programs are being reduced or being stopped. So, so far, you know, going to 2021, still many programs are, are in place. The unemployment to 20% unemployed people or something like that, between 10 and 20 around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but once the governments will stop printing money, pouring money into the economies, we may see, again, a, a crisis in the financial markets and surging uncertainty. Take into account that the economies around the world lost about 10% in GDP for 2020 alone. It means about 10% total loss, one-time loss in GDP. So I think it can be translated to a loss of production in the world of something like $10 trillion. A loss that nobody can return. It's a one-time loss. So even all the government help and aids and uh, programs are not going to resolve the loss of $10, billion, $10 trillion in production. And that's what the world has to cope with. And that's only for 2020. We don't know what will happen in 2021. Do you know what the debt-to-GDP to ratio is in Israel? prior to the COVID it's crisis? not very high. The debt, debt to GDP is about 60% before the pandemic. And uh, it's, it will go up, but it's not, it's not a major threat at this point. Okay. But the question is, what will happen in uh, next year? Yeah, so this is probably why our treasurer um, still has a smile in his face, because Australia yes. is in such a good shape in comparison to the rest of the world, but uh, uh, I am not sure that that's a good opportunity. It's not because you've got such a huge line of potential credit that you should be spending it uh, in that way, because really it's not giving us any growth in the economy, quite the contrary. And uh, what it's doing, it's completely decimating businesses. And I don't know how we're going to recover uh, beyond this crisis, as you described, um, if you compare it to 2008, 
when you had a subprime problem and it was really focused on the banking system. And now this, is, this has the potential of becoming a sovereign problem uh, that will include the banks because um, they will have no choice but to issue margin calls to the mortgages um, that uh, weren't able to pay uh, during the pandemic, won't be able to pay after the pandemic, and potentially uh, they're, they're going to have to recall loans and that should that will probably send our real estate market into a potential collapse. That's the nightmare scenario we are contemplating. Yeah, I think first of all, uh, the major issue will be the unemployment rate, which uh, will jump in many countries above between 10 to 20 percent. Think about the all the tourism industry which became the largest industry in the world of the last 30 years. It's dead still. You know, it's now starting to reopen, but with many restrictions and many people are delaying and not uh, trying to avoid flights until the tourist industry is going to, let's say, 70% of its capacity before the pandemic. The economies will be in a pretty bad shape. That's a major indicator in my view today. The tourist industry means also restaurants and uh, hotels and airlines, many related industries that are affected in a major way. The keys to reopen the economies. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, the very same similar problem in Australia. Um, in Australia, as you know, we have a federation. And uh, what we have discovered is that this federation uh, is only an illusion because now is the time where all the states need to work together and what they're all doing is working against each other. There are sections under our constitution where discrimination is not allowed. Yet I heard the premier of Queensland saying that the health system for, of Queensland is for Queenslanders. I would have thought that that's... Uh, a major issue uh, when it comes to the breach of uh, uh, a section against discrimination in the constitution. The federal government, unfortunately, is not doing anything about it. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a mess. Talking about indicators, the value at risk, as you know, that was a major indicator for hedge funds and and uh, portfolio managers during the uh, the last uh, crisis uh, 12 years ago. Um, so those indicators had proven to be totally obsolete at that time. So has there been an area of research in to replace the value at risk? Or are we still with those indicators? I mean, also, I want to talk to you about the pricing model of the Black Shoals. I know that you were, or you still are friendly with uh, with Black and Scholes. I don't know who passed away. Is it Black or is it Scholes? I forgot which Black, one. Black. Is it Black, yes. In 1995, a prize, because he passed away two years before they got the Nobel Prize. He was a very unique person. Yes. and so Very but, unique mind. But even though um, that I'm sure that was the case, the Black and Scholes model uh, has proven not to be too accurate. Uh, do you 
Do you think that that's uh, 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 because they were using standard deviations when in actual facts the market doesn't care about standard deviations, right? Yeah. It's, a formula is a formula. You know, it's, it's a theoretical construction based on assumptions. In some, sometimes assumptions are more or less they work. During, you know, the calm days, the, the formula works pretty well. During a crisis time, when volatility is changing, of course the formula cannot work because it, it assumes that volatility is a constant. So, you know, it's not the fault of the formula, hmm. but the formula may have limited application based on its assumptions. But still, it's used all over the world. I think the most applied formula, and you have to do some adjustments sometimes to fit it to reality. And that's what traders are doing. They have the experience, they know how to do it. But the formula itself was a major breakthrough in finance and economics. Undoubtedly, it was one of the greatest inventions. And the idea actually behind it is the issue of hedging. That if you can hedge risk completely, then you have a very good benchmark, which is a riskless interest rate. So it opened actually the field to many different approaches that are built on the hedging ability and the understanding that everything is sort of, you bring everything to the same common denominator. All prices are relative prices in financial markets. So you have a benchmark, and then you price everything against the benchmark. And usually the benchmark is a government interest rate. Mm -hmm. What happened over the last decade is that in many countries, interest rate is now negative. And that's a major issue. Because if you look at the economic theories, they never caught with a negative interest rate, what are the consequences? It means that people, when they put money in the bank, they lose money. They may lose half percent per year. What, what, what does it mean? What people should do? What, how do you extend it to the macroeconomic theories or to microeconomics, to pricing of securities? Mm -hmm. There's a major challenge in theory today, how to cope and how to deal with negative interest rate. Are you doing some research in that area? Sorry? Are you doing research in this area? Uh, not exactly, but uh, I haven't heard of any breakthrough yet in this uh, area. But it's a major concern, absolutely. Yes. Very challenging. That certainly highlights the uncertain times we are living through. Then, last time I was in Israel, we were talking about new insurance products we were working on. And in particular, I recall a new formulation on blockchain with uh, an insurance product for VCs. Can you please touch on this? And uh, it's a very interesting area. I'm wondering where you're at with it. Have you launched it? Uh, 
Yeah, I, insurance companies are going through a major revolution. You know, there was an Israeli-based, Israeli-American-based uh, new startup in uh, the insurtech, Lemonade, that went public a couple of months ago. Um, and I think they went from a, a, a IPO, they were valued at over a billion dollars, uh, one and a half, and they mm-hmm. doubled the value within two months. But the idea is that you use contracts in a different ways, insurance contracts. Lemonade is doing something that is sort of social, socially based on sharing some of the profits. If you don't claim and you have an ex, if you paid sort of ex post, excess uh, premium, they share the benefits with you. But some insurance companies will offer what they call smart contracts. So it means that you'll pay premium based on your driving behavior, for example, for car insurance. So they will be cheap connected to the car and to the insurance company. And it depends on how much you drive, at what speed, at what time of the day or night. And the insurance premium will be determined actually based on your performance, on your behavior. So there will be many new contracts that will be much more personalized than what you have today. Because today you pay average insurance. They take the probability, the expected value of a damage that may happen. But the future will be to have personalized contract. So some will benefit, especially those that drive well and are careful drivers. And some drivers will pay much more. At the end of the day, they are not going to subsidize uh, the people, but they are going to charge different rates based on your driving behavior. And there will be many more contracts like that. But, you know, the, the issue of blockchain is that you can decentralize many decisions. You know, if you look at banking, traditional banking, traditional stock exchanges, they're all centralized and they connect all the transactions in one place. The blockchain allows you to decentralize, to do things that are person to person. So it's a different concept, not always. Sometimes you you want the centralization. You have a concept of scale. Sometimes you want to have things that are decentralized. So, you know, it will be, it will open up new ventures, new opportunities. But again, we see that the rate of introduction of new products is very slow. The expectations were very high. But the realization is that it, it takes more time to introduce new new products. The same happened to Bitcoin and to other cryptocurrencies. You know, we see that the volume actually is not ex- exploding like they, they expected. So Bitcoin is still very volatile, going up and down by tens of percent per week. But uh, we don't see any major surge in uh, in the cryptocurrencies. 
But again, you know, the next wave may be sovereign cryptocurrencies. But the issue is that actually we are moving more and more toward cashless society, meaning that everything will be done digitally, all transactions. So and how, no so cash. How is that uh, uh, therefore working for you with the product uh, that uh, uh, we spoke about, about the insurance product that you have for the startups? Oh, the, uh, still uh, talking to investors. We have a few commitments. Yeah, the idea was to have to provide liquidity to uh, founders of corporations. The issue is that today, founders of companies, uh, many of them actually, 60, 80% of them, are not going to be successful. Statistics show that less than 20% of startups actually go to the next stage. Okay, so many of them fail. And those that are successful, it takes much more time until they can liquidate some of the position. So they actually don't have much liquidity because their salaries are usually limited, especially the first few years before they have enough funds. And the idea was to provide, to create a fund that will provide liquidity to founders in good states and in bad states. So if the company is closing up, the founder will get some liquidity, some money. And if the company is doing very well, they will share some of the shares with the fund. So it's like giving puts and getting call options. That was a trade-off. Uh, and actually many funds, they love the idea. Many venture funds love the idea too. It's like providing secondary to the founders. And I believe that we'll uh, launch, launch it very soon. I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, that will be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to hear more about it uh, than when you are ready. Uh, and if you need investors, of course, you need to let me know as well. Um, let's talk about the strategies uh, that could work under uh, this COVID environment. Um, how do you uh, position yourself uh, to surf this current wave of COVID-19 uh, to, to stay uh, alive, to, to make money? How do you make money in this environment? Is there a way? I see. Uh, I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm not, since I have the investment company, I'm not allowed to trade in stocks, in uh, single stocks. Uh, I have to give my money to blind uh, trust, but I can invest in uh, startups and I do it all the time, including the pandemic. It's actually a great opportunity to find a good new companies, new startups, more time to do the due diligence. Uh, it's easy to get meetings, to do meetings on Zoom and on telephone and get the information. And actually, <clears throat> two of my portfolio companies, fortunately enough, raised 
more than $10 million each during those pandemic days from venture funds in the United States when due diligence was all done digitally, remotely, there were no visits, and still the American funds invested more than $10 million in each venture at very nice valuation, very nice multiples. So actually business is taking place. And if you are in the right fields, especially during the pandemic, you know, things like cyber security, a cloud-based services, a telemedicine, there's a lot of interest and a lot of new ventures trying to serve the new needs of people that are staying at home and they need all kinds of services. So actually in my lectures before the pandemic, I always told the students that the crisis is bad because people are getting unemployed, many businesses are closing down. But I said, it's always also a good starting point. You have new opportunities in any crisis. Hmm. And the question is how, whether you know how to lever and use a crisis and understand what will happen next in order to see what will be the next industries, what will be the next services, and to try to join the wagon, jump on the wagon, and invest in things that today may look not expensive, and if they are successful in reading the future, mm -hmm. in understanding the future, there will be great opportunities for investments. So actually you should look at this crisis as a starting point for new opportunities. But in the derivative market, what sort of derivative instruments would you be able to use? Let's say that you are in the, um, in the tourism industry. Um, you would uh, be hard pressed to find a derivative instrument for that industry, right? Uh, yes, but it all depends on the price. Prices reflect quite well uh, what happens in the tourist industry. So, you know, if you can see which, what kind of, which sector of the tourist industry will recuperate first, will be more in demand, and the price reflects, you know, the, what the situation today, you can find a great opportunities. You know, all kinds of resorts that are bungalows separated, that uh, actually also are good for the pandemic time because people can keep isolated, almost like a quarantine. Mm -hmm. They will uh, do very well in the, in the near future and maybe in the long run as well. Uh, yes. All the, you know, condensed huge hotels where you have 1,000 people trying to gang on a on the restaurant at the same time on a buffet, it will take time for them to recover. So even in the tourist industry, I'm sure that there will be different opportunities. I was talking precisely about a derivative instrument that you could use to hedge. Uh, against a downfall in the tourism industry. I don't think there is one. I don't even know if there is a cross one. Uh, but uh, what you said is totally relevant, but that would be like uh, uh, redefining 
uh, your business and uh, yeah, you know, I own hotels and for me there, I just don't know what I could have done to uh, hedge myself against this crisis. I've taken it right on my face. I have. To How can you hedge yourself against the airline airline industry? Yeah, yeah you just. And again, the airline industry will take years to recover. Yeah, I mean the only thing that it that this is uh, reminding us is the need for diversification. You just can't concentrate in one industry. Thanks Absolutely. goodness that's my case, but many others uh, are, aren't as lucky. Now, Dan, I would like to go to the response of the Israeli government for COVID-19, uh, the impact in the economy, and uh, whether uh, you, are, you have some uh, comments. Uh, do you have any criticism? Would you have done things differently? And by the way, maybe I should, should start uh, with this question. Are you advising the Israeli government? How? Sorry? Are you advising the Israeli government? Uh, no, I'm not advising. Uh, I am not sure that they, are, they want to listen to anybody. You know, some of my colleagues try to say a few things about what they think about the policy, and they were muted by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, no, they don't, they don't want to listen now. I, I think they handled the economy pretty badly. Uh, first of all, you know, I, I think that they looked for simple solutions. And I think that also in Victoria, now you face the same issue of, you know, having a curfew, everybody's at home in Australia now for six weeks. In Israel, it was for something like one month. Uh, in order to handle the pandem pandemic, but you know, you kill the economy. And the question is, you know, it's not either or. You have to find more clever solution because having a curfew is not a clever solution. And, you know, it's not that the pandemia is everywhere. It's, for example, in Israel, you have a few cities where you have a lot, the high frequency of the cases, and you have places where zero cases. So having the same medicine given to everybody across the board is not, is not a clever solution. You have to deal with the places where you have the problem. And you can't kill the whole economy in putting 20% of the workforce on unemployment because you have issues in specific places. Fortunately enough, in Israel, we don't have a major problem in hospitals yet. The pressure on hospitals is actually pretty much under control. And the num number of deaths is something like 850 from the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you look at the statistics, in July 2020, less people died from any cause in Israel than over the July, the last 10 years. And actually, the population went up by something like 10, 15% or more, and the number of deaths went down. Yes, there were more cases 
of uh, the COVID-19, but the total number went down for many reasons. So, you know, to kill the economy and to kill people that are now unemployed, people were pushed to starvation. You know, think about all the people in the entertainment business. They lost their jobs completely. It's not that they saved a lot of money, many of them, you know, the people behind the scenes, all the people working on, on stage, on, you know, technical assistance, they all were laid off. I don't think they saved much in, in the past and they, they, they don't get enough money now to support the families. So we have to take the two aspects into consideration together. It's not either or. And we have to look for more clever solutions. And also as far as the economic assistance, you know, for example, in Israel, uh, when uh, the government was under pressure, they decided to give everybody in the country 750 shekels, like 250 Australian dollars. Everybody got in the bank account this 250 to support but they gave it across the board to 9 million people, to the whole population. Now it doesn't make sense because think about all the government employees, none of them lost the, the jobs, all government employees, all university employees, mm -hmm. all people serving in the army, they get the salaries fully. Yeah. Why do they need yeah. the 750? While other people that were laid off need more than, because it's $250 don't help them much. So it's a stupid solution, you know, it's, a, it's simple, but it, it doesn't make sense. And there are many solutions like that that actually don't make sense. Also, to, you know, people that were laid off, they got some government support. But the government support is sometimes too high for them to encourage them to look for jobs. So if they get like 2,000 Australian dollars a month, and they can go to the beach now because it's summer in Israel, very nice weather. They prefer to be, you know, on leave of absence as long as they can and get $2,000 per month and not look for jobs, hmm. even if jobs are available. And some actually in the industry, some look for workers and they cannot find workers. So you have this, this situation where 20% of the workforce is on leave or unemployed, and still you have shortage of workers in some places. And it doesn't make sense, but it's all an issue of incentives. Yeah. In Germany, they use a different system. They paid to the em employers money to get the employees back to work. So they subsidize, so the employers they subsidize people returning back to work. Yeah, we have a similar which thing made, here too. Yeah. In Israel, they started in some, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. But, you know, again, pouring money and not thinking how to do it properly um, is worrisome because it means more debt. We transfer more to the future, to the future generations to pay for the pandemic. Um, I'm pretty sure that in most countries, taxes will go up in the next year or two. Um, 
we'll have to pay for it one way or another. It's, as I said, the loss in GDP is a loss in GDP. Nobody is going to pay for it. So, so how are we going to get out of this? How do we uh, get out of this eventually? What sort of, how deep will be the crisis, I should say, um, before we can be on the other side? You know, it, I, I think it depends on uh, vaccination or medications. Either one, whoever will come first. We see that the treatment now is much more effective than it used to be at the beginning because uh, they learned quite a lot. We don't know much, you know, it's half a year. We don't know much. There's a lot of uh, trials and errors, uh, a lot of uh, research being done on uh, vaccines for the pandemic, for the COVID-19. Uh, for sure, once there will be vaccines or better medication, uh, it will help to solve the, you know, the situation in, in the economies. But still, I think that long-term planning is needed, how to bring people back to work, how to open the economies, how not to impose curfews as a solution on the total population, but where it's needed. You know, to do it much more centralized or focused. It's politically not easy. We see it in Israel with a, you know, the, the major pandemic actually hit the our population and the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox. But you need political ability and power to deal with the specific populations. Who is, um, the most, who is the most equipped politician in Israel today that you would say makes the most sense to you? Because it's all based on coalitions. And... You have 15, uh, you have more, you have about 16 or 17 Haredi members of the parliament out of, out of 120. You have 15 Arab members in the parliament. So, you know, any coalition is uh, depending on the agreement. So uh, even simple issues like flying to Uman for the Brasilov Haredi is a major political issue. And there's a debate that is going, is being delayed because nobody in the government wants to take a decision because of the coalition considerations. So when politics got into uh, medical issues and economic issues, that's the worst. Uh, and it's something that very difficult to resolve. So they look for simple solutions to have curfew on everybody if you can't impose it on specific populations. But today, one of the professors, medical professors, talked on the radio. She said in the central part of Israel, the frequency in Tel Aviv, for example, the frequency, the number of uh, sick people, COVID-19, over the last week mm -hmm. is about half of what you have in Nebark, almost the same as you have in some of the Arab villages in the Galilee. So you can't have the same treatment by the government for Tel Aviv or for the other places where actually the pandemic is uh, 
in full force. So everything needs to But be again, customized. You need the political power to do it. Yeah, you need to have everything customized. Uh, Professor yeah. Dan Galai, I, I, I think that you've been extremely generous with your time. Um, I'd like to continue this conversation. Maybe we'll, we'll do another, uh, another episode with you because with pleasure. there's so many good things um, that uh, we can talk about. So I want to thank you, Dan. Thank you for taking my the pleasure. Time. And so what are you going to do for the rest of your day today? What, what is a day of Dan Galai look like? Going to Tel Aviv to my office in Sigma, Mohammed Gan actually, having a few Zoom meetings today and at night uh, working on research with my fellow researchers in California, in other places. Busy day. Very good. Dan, thank you again. I look forward to the next time. Thank you. Have a good day and health to everybody. Absolutely. To you too. Bye, Dan.